Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open that up to John chapter 19, verse 23. Um, as, as we were getting back last night late and then realizing the time change and everything was happening, I was kind of groggily pulling things out of my baggage and stuff. And I reached in and I pulled out my uh, shaving cream bottle. And in the process of that, uh, my razor cut me to the bone. Interesting. I was bleeding and bleeding, and I thought, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm about to die. Marisa saved me. Um, she came in, and, I, you know, and you start thinking about, about dying and about death. And, and, and I've had some, some real serious near-life moments where I literally almost died. I was five years old. And I was running down the street, well, actually the sidewalk in St. Louis outside our house. And, and, and I was pulling my little red wagon, and I cut across the yard. And I don't know if it was the wagon or me or something hit the brick. And I went airborne, and I flew right into the corner of a concrete porch of one of our neighbors. And I busted open my head, hit my nose between the eyes, hit a major artery there, and was just profusely losing blood. Uh, my mom had just stepped out of the house, and she had uh, taken diapers off the, the, the clothesline and stuff, so she had diapers in. And as I come walking up the street, uh, she put those on my head, and my dad just pulled in from work. And so we got in the car with him, and I remember asking, am I going to die? I mean, I can't see, the blood is, is everywhere, and all I know is this is serious, and I'm about five years old. Uh, my mother assured me, no. You know, and she's in the back keeping the compress on me till we fly at like 90 mile an hour down Cherokee Street in St. Louis, getting to the hospital. Um, and, and I think I asked my dad, and he may have passed out when I asked him that. But I, I, I was serious. You know, am I going to die? Because this was serious to me. About six years later, we'd moved out to the country here, and the country has all kinds of wonderful things that, that come with it. Ticks, for one. And I got bit by a tick. Now, it wasn't a Rocky Mountain spotted fever or Lyme disease. It was some kind of other poisonous tick that got me, and my body began to swell. My organs began to start to shut down. Uh, they, they rushed me to the hospital. The doctors were trying to figure out what it was, and they'd given me a matter of just a couple days, probably, of living until they finally found the, the right medication, the antibiotic to that. Um, but I remember asking that question again. Am I going to die? And my doctor says, well, I'm doing everything I can to keep that from happening. You know, my mother was there as well. Uh, and she stayed with me in the hospital and she held my hand through all that ordeal and, and she loved me through it even though I had those fears of, is this the end? About six years later, and I wonder what it is about these little six years and stuff. I, I was in high school, and, and, and somehow I contracted cerebral meningeal encephalitis. That doesn't sound good, does it? <laughs> it wasn't. And once again, concerns are, will I make it or will I die? You know, those, are, those are things. And by that time, I, I was ready to, to, to face whatever God had in store. But I was so thankful my mother was there. She was there with me through that, and, and we walked that journey together, and I'm still here. Thankfully, my mother passed in, in August, but my wife took care of me last night, so I didn't die. But it takes me to this passage of Scripture in the book of John. 
in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. So if you'll read with me. So they took, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier and also his tunic. But, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let's... Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the Scripture says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, when Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, of all the four Gospels, John is the only one who who records for us Mary, Jesus' mother, being present there at the cross. Now, it would be expected that, that she would probably be in Jerusalem at this time because, after all, this was the Feast of the Passover. That's what's happening there in Jerusalem. So everybody's coming into town, and this was always something that Mary would do uh, in life. I mean, Scripture tells us that, that even in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 41, now his parents, they went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. So we would expect Mary to be there if she were still alive. And maybe this time she would have gone with friends or maybe some other relatives uh, to, to enjoy this feast because probably after Joseph's death, she's, she's in her widowed life, and so she wouldn't have done this alone. Um, we're assuming that Joseph probably passed away sometime before Jesus began his ministry. The Bible really is kind of vague on that. There's not a whole lot of discussion there. But uh, so as Jesus became the adult and started his ministry, the only parent he has left is Mary. And she seems to be interwoven throughout uh, this history of him as he's going around in ministry. She's always there. But now we find her here at the foot of the cross. And I wonder... As I've asked my mother in previous times, am I going to die? I don't think Jesus would have asked her that question. I think there was something different going on in his mind. He wasn't going to die. He was eventually going to live. But here he was going to give his life. But there's his mother. You see, now she's here in Jerusalem, and her son's in trouble. (laughs) <laughs> he'd been arrested uh, in the middle of the night um, and, and drugged through town throughout the night in some kind of a kangaroo court system. It was unjustifiable, the charges that they laid up against him, because none of them were true. But yet the, the Pharisees and the, the rulers of the, of, the, of the temple and the synagogue area, they, they determined that he was guilty of crimes that needed to be punishable by death. And they took him to Pilate, and they had the Roman court then condemn him as well. And, and so now he is here, and, he, and he's, he's, he's been beaten, he's been abused, he's been mocked and laughed at and spit upon, and he is there before her 
dying on a cross. And, and you wonder, after all the times that she has wiped the tears from his eyes as he fell and got a little bruise, or maybe helped with the cuts that he's had because of the sharp knife that he was dealing with in his dad's you know, workplace or whatever, she can't stop the bleeding this time. She can't take away the pain. But she's there. And then she's reminded as well of a prophecy. There was a time they'd been in Jerusalem, but Jesus really was only eight days old, and they were taking him to the temple so he could be dedicated. It was something that, that most families would do with their children at about eight days. And they encountered a man there on that trip in, a man by the name of Simeon. And he made this statement, we can read in Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. He says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Jesus' mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. But in, in the middle of all that statement, there's this parenthetical thought that is there that, John, or that Luke writes for us. He says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So as Simeon is telling Mary and Joseph, man, this child, he's destined for greatness. And what's going to happen because of him is unbelievable. There's going to be the rising and the falling of many people. And, 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 but in the middle of all this, he tells Mary, you're not going to come out of this unscathed. A sword is going to pierce your soul also, moms, can you imagine the agony of watching your son right there where you'd love to at least grasp him there at his feet and you're probably not permitted to touch him? You can spit on him, but the soldiers probably kept her back to watch your son die before your very eyes. If that sword doesn't pierce your soul, I don't know what would. Now, Mary wasn't alone. Even though she's near him, she she's, needs the comfort of other people. And so there's some other ladies there that are with her. And John kind of gives us a little bit of a glimpse. But if you go into the book of Matthew, we notice that Mary and three other ladies are there. And they appear in the stories about this crucifixion. And so Matthew 27, verse 55 through 56, it says, There were also many women there looking on from a distance. And they had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among who were Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which we find out later is probably Salome is her name. Now, in addition to Mary, Jesus' mom, there, there are these other ladies. Well, there's Mary uh, from Magdala. And she's been with Jesus for quite a while. She, she encountered him one time at a banquet, and, and, but there was something unique about her. She'd been possessed by seven devils, devils or demons, and Jesus had cast them out of her life and, and really gave her a life. And as a result of that, she followed him. She, she was as a disciple as well. She's one of the multitudes that went with him wherever that he would go teach. 
And here she is now at the very end at the foot of the cross with his mother helping to possibly wipe the tears from her eyes as she streams her own. Then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now this is Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. And she's there as well with her sister as her heart is breaking and she's trying to help her in this moment and bring her comfort. We know that there was the other mother there uh, of the, uh, <laughs> these boys, James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee, those, those, those boys who like to, you know, they could be in WWE, the sons of thunder. You know, they come in and she's there. But John tells us that there is somebody else in this picture at the foot of the cross besides these women. And he says there's also the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, who is that? Well, as we kind of read through the, the book of John, we discover that that's the only time is, is in the book of John that we read these phrases, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and he repeats it a few times there within that book. And it turns out really it's John himself, the author of the gospel. He just doesn't tell you that. All he knows is he wants to tell you, Jesus loved me. Rather than saying, I was there. But we get it. Isn't that really how you want to be known? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you really want to be able to have it recorded in all history and, and, and written down It says, yes, this is the disciple who lived in the 21st century that Jesus loved. Well, he loves you. Matter of fact, that's why he's on the cross. Even for his mother and his aunt and for Mary and Salome and John and He's there for you and me too. Jesus' third statement on this cross to those who are gathered below is one that is very consistent with the others. It's not about himself. It's about everybody else. It's about somebody now in, in specific contrast to the rest of the world. He's focusing on his mom. That's, that's who he wants to speak to. And so he, he makes this statement here. And so the first thing we notice in, in this story here in John 19 is that, that he focuses on his mother. And, and however, he, he doesn't call her mom. He doesn't call her mother. He doesn't call her mommy or mama or whatever other name. He calls her woman. And I think, what? Woman? This is your mom. I can't, you know, maybe I jokingly said, hey, woman, to my mother, but then I probably got slapped, you know. But that's not the context here. I, I think the NIV translates it pretty accurately because they, they will translate it, dear woman. It, it's, it is a term of endearment, and, and they use that word, gineka, in a variety of ways, but I think in the proposition in which he's using it here, it's, a, it's in a in term of endearment, but there's also a formality about it. It's testamentary language that he's going to use as well because of what's about to transpire in his life. So he uses that. Now, while we might say him calling her woman in our culture seemed to be cold or, or whatever, it was perfectly proper for him to address her this way based upon what he's just about to say. And so under Jewish family law, you have to understand the firstborn son is responsible for the widow. 
And if Joseph's father, or if Jesus' father, Joseph, is dead, Jesus now is responsible for the care of his mom. That's just a cultural thing. But he's dying. He's shirking his responsibility. Who's going to take care of her? You know, part of the reason that the firstborn son receives a double inheritance of all the boys is because he's going to have to take care of mom. And so he looks down at his mother, and as Mary's firstborn, he is legally responsible for her welfare to ensure that she has a place to live and food to eat during her widowhood until she dies. And so John 19, verse 27, tells us, And from that hour the disciple whom Jesus said, Behold, your mother takes her home with him to live in his home, and he's going to take care of her the rest of her life. So as I kind of reflect on this statement of the cross, I begin to see something about the extent of Jesus' love. He, he, he is dying in agony. He is gasping for every breath, and he sees his mother. I mean, this is the one who comforted him through all of his struggles as a child. This is the one who, who rocked him to sleep when maybe he'd been picked on during the day. This is the one who wrapped her arms around him and protected him and, and gave him her love. This is the one whom he would run home to whenever he fell and got a, a boo-boo. But now he sees her at the foot of his cross. And she's heartbroken and she's weeping and she's inconsolable and his heart goes out to her. Rather than being consumed by an understandable concern about his own pain and his own agony and his own grief and what he's having to go through, his focus is on this widowed woman that is his responsibility. He's going to die and she's going to be known as not only a widow but as the mother of that criminal the one whom everybody hated there and couldn't wait to see crucified, and so they were all shouting it. What are we as Jesus' disciples to learn from this little statement? I think there's a lot. The first thing is, we're supposed to love our parents no matter what. And, and that carries with it a lot of weight. Sometimes our parents, they misunderstand us or they disapprove or the, of the decisions that we make. And, 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 and sometimes they can really hurt us grievously by their own actions and by the things that they've done. And we don't want to love them. But yet, this is what we're supposed to do. Jesus, he also had been hurt by his mother at times. He had been misunderstood by her and by his brothers and by his sisters, and, and, and they didn't quite get him and what he was doing. Let me throw out a few passages of Scripture that talk about the hurt that they brought upon him. You have to go into Mark chapter 3, and you see that Jesus is up in Capernaum, and he's teaching in the temple, and, and the people think there's something weird about him, and, and, and so they're beginning to have some scuttlebutt conversations that, man, he's got to be maybe demon-possessed. Maybe he's a son of Beelzebub. We don't know what's going on with him. And so his mother even comes up, and, and we see in Mark 3.21, when his family heard that there was this questioning going on up there, they went out to seize him, and they were saying, he's out of his mind. Who's saying he's, he's out of his family? 
Oh, that's, 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 don't, don't do anything to him. He's, he's just not, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's, he's out of his mind. And then you go on a little bit further, and you go down to verse 31 through 35, and you say, and his mother and his brothers, they came, and standing outside the synagogue, they sent in and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, hey, your mother and your, and your brothers are outside, and they're seeking you. And listen to what he answered there in verse 33. Well, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother, is my brother and my sister and my mother. So even Mary and, and, and James and Judas and, and the other kids, they're all like, Jesus, he's not controlled by Beelzebub, no, but, but he's just not thinking right, so let's get him out of here. He do, he's, he's, he's totally misunderstood by them. And then you go over to the book of John, chapter 7. It says, and after this, Jesus went about in Galilee... He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But now listen. Now, the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, they said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, and your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one work is secret if he seeks to be known openly. And if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now listen, verse 5. For not even his brothers believed him. The family thinks he's kooky. They don't believe what he's saying. And so Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world, it cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about what, that its works are evil. He says, You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, having said all that, and you think the family is turning their back on him, and they think he doesn't really know what he's saying, and they want to keep him alive, so they want to keep him from making a fool of himself. And yet Jesus still recognizes he has an obligation to his family. The Apostle Paul put it this way, he was rather adamant about it when he writes to us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. He says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You have a responsibility, and it is to your family, and you are to love your parents no matter what whether they believe in you or whether they think you're out of your mind. We're called to love and to honor them. So how do we reconcile our primary commitment to Jesus with our responsibility to our families? Sometimes it's kind of difficult. Our parents don't make it easy. Sometimes our, our earthly parents can be cruel. They can be self-centered. They can be selfish. They can be... Um, be downrighteous vicious so how am i supposed to love people who are like that 
You see, there is no conditional clause in how we love our parents. We don't love dad if he does this or when he does this. We don't love mom because she does this. We are to love our parents. That is a command that we have been given. And we are to honor them in all these things. But to put Christ first doesn't mean that we are free to neglect our parents. Matter of fact, there was a thing that that the Jews were permitted financially to set money aside as what they called Corbin. And it was money that would be dedicated to the service of God somehow. All right? And Jesus even brought this into a context one time because these people, they weren't taking care of mom and dad. And they said, well, we can't because the money that we had in excess, we put as Corbin so it's to be used for God, so I can't take care of my mom and dad. He's like, what are you talking about? How how awful is it for us to ignore our families this way? We still have this obligation to do this. And the thing is, if we put our priorities in proper place, it doesn't matter what mom and dad have done to me whether they've loved me or hated me, whether they've celebrated with me or despised me, I have a responsibility to love them. And God's going to give us the wisdom on how we can work that out. Now here at the end of his life, we see Jesus and his tender heart and his love as a son for his mother. A mother who had sometimes misunderstood him. And as he dies, he settles his earthly obligations as best that he can. And so we hear him say there in in John 19, Woman, behold your son. He turns to John and he says, Behold your mother. He's taking care of her. And so in the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus, the eternal Christ becomes this helpless child in which Mary has had to take care of. And now he's turning the tables and he's trying to take care of her He relied upon her for his physical and his spiritual strength and and, and nourishment. And now he's the one providing for her in this. You see, when, when God became man, he didn't shrug responsibility. He embraced it wholeheartedly. I don't know how, how it was in his incarnation. We know that he was fully God, but yet he's also fully man. And as this fully man... He's got this charge to take care of his mom. At the age of 12, Jesus made a declaration about understanding who his real father was. They'd gone into the Jerusalem, oh, for feast of Passover, wasn't it? Yeah, one of those yearly things that they did. And, and, and as a family left, they forgot about Jesus, and they thought he was with them, but turns out he's not there. So they headed back into town. They find him in the temple, but he's communicating with the teachers of the law and the, and, the, and the Pharisees, and he's asking questions and giving answers and astounding them about his understanding of the Scripture. But Mary and Joseph, they're a little miffed. And so they find him there, and it's like they want to grab him by the ear and say, what are you doing here? Let's go. And he makes this statement to them in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And I get it. I've got obligations to my family, my father, my mother. But he also had an obligation to his father that he come into this world as a result of his will to do and to carry out what he needed to carry out. There was the beginning of his public ministry, and just as he had started it, we see that Jesus 
is confronted by his mother a little bit. She's kind of eager because she's, she's been storing up things in her heart and she knows something's going to be unique about him. And they're at a, at a wedding and she's like, oh, they're running out of, out of wine. Jesus, do something. <laughs> and he makes this statement again where, where he, he says to her in John chapter 2, verse 4, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Here again, he uses that term woman in a respectful way, but yet, you don't get it, Mary. You just don't understand yet. This, this isn't about me, but yet what does he do? Does he ignore her? He honors her, doesn't he? And he says, okay. She says, hey, fellas, just do whatever he tells you to do, and she leaves. So I'm gone. We'll go get, go get some water jugs, and we'll, we'll do what mom wants me to do. No, but he did, and he honored her. And, and in his ability to honor his mother, what happened? There was honor that was brought upon that whole household and upon the wedding because of the celebration that they saved the best for last. When we honor our parents, no matter what, God uses it for glory. You see, Simon's prophecy that was recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, when it says that, he blessed him and said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the hall and the rising of many of Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Someone has eloquently written a piece about this sword. Let me read it to you. There her son hung before her eyes, but she was helpless. His wounds bled, but she dared not stop the flow of the blood. His, his mouth was parched, hot like an oven, but she cannot moisten it. His body ached, arched from the pain of the scourged, the tearing of the thorns, the piercing of the nails, but she cannot soothe him. Those outstretched arms used to clasp around her neck. She used to fondle those pierced hands and feet when he was young and now the nails pierce her as well as him. The thorns that are around his brow were a circle of flame around her head. The taunts that were flung at him wounded her likewise. To add to her agony, Jesus was dying the death of a criminal. And Mary was going through the experience prophesied by Simeon. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now, if Mary needs a son to love, to cherish, a son who will provide for her, her needs in life, she's going to have to turn to this disciple, John, this, this young man that Jesus loved and would entrust to, her, to his care. I think the second thing we notice in this statement on the cross is that, that he focused on his own responsibility. Jesus, I mean, he's the central figure in, in, in this drama that's being played out before all of our eyes. God will not share his glory with anyone else, not even the earthly mother of Jesus. This is all about him and his responsibility to fulfill what God had laid out for him. And the last letter and the detail of the law that he'd been given, Jesus is going to finish it. 
So the subject of honoring our parents is one of great importance. As a matter of fact, it's, it's in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. It's a part of the great commandments that God had given the people of Israel. And somehow we find it easy to say, well, I'm not going to murder and I'm not going to steal and I'm not going to commit adultery and I'm not going to take my neighbor's things and covet those that he has and I, I'm not going to have any other gods before me and, and I'm, well, I like the Sabbath because I get a rest that day, right? I mean, we, we have all these things that we're going to do, but there's that one, the fifth commandment that sometimes we want to ignore. And listen what it says to us in Exodus chapter 20 verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That commandment needs to be taken seriously. But too many of us, we shrug off our shoulders and tuss the dirt off our feet and we say goodbye mom and dad. We can't. We are obligated. Even in the New Testament, Paul writes to us in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 through 3. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, Paul says, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So honoring our parents is a command of God. It doesn't matter who your parent is. It doesn't matter what they've done or what they haven't done. You are commanded by God to honor your parents, period. You cannot shirk that responsibility. That's who we are supposed to be obedient to is God in heaven. And when he says this, we have to follow through. So... Not only does the fifth commandment relate to and and, and facilitate the keeping of this this last commandment, it also is much related to the keeping of the commandments that pertain to our ability to worship God. Listen to what it says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, well, how if we despised your name? Because you're not honoring your own parents. There's no conditions to it. And Jesus demonstrates us up to the very last moment of his life, that he honors his mother. Providing for her as his last responsibility. So those who honor God must honor their parents. And those who honor their parents, they've already begun the process of learning how to honor God. You see, our earthly fathers are on one hand God's representatives instructing and disciplining us as children so that we know what is right and what is wrong. Some fail at that and others succeed wonderfully. But that still doesn't dampen the fact that they have been given to us, or as a matter of fact, we have been given to them. Do you believe that God is the author of life? If He is, then He is the one who determines who lives and when they live, and where they live, and, and who they're going to live with, right? So he has put you in a household in which your mother and father raised you. Good or bad, 
He did that, and Paul's going to tell the people there in Athens, he did it because it was the best time in this world's history in which you would have an opportunity to seek out God and perhaps find Him. Even if you're raised in an atheistic family. Isn't that amazing? You see, parents are to serve to illustrate the way in which God is at work in the lives of His children as Father. So let me tap into this briefly. If you're a parent, <laughs> man, you got a lot of weight on your shoulders. Because you're to represent Christ. You're to represent God, our Father in Heaven, to your kids, to your grandkids, to your great-grandkids. You can't shirt that responsibility either. So honoring our parents is vitally important obligation. Not only is it signaled by its inclusion in the Ten Commandments and by the death penalty it's attached to it, that if you don't honor your parents, that they can kill you. Can you imagine the first time in a community there in Israel when some kid back-talked his dad and his dad said, uh-oh. The community said, oh, well, I guess we've got to kill him. We're being serious here. There was a death penalty attached to children who disobeyed and dishonored their parents. And you say, well, I'm glad I don't live back then. I'd have been dead at five years old. Well, maybe we should be. Honoring our parents is important because it teaches us as well to honor God. It's fundamental for passing on of Israel's faith from one generation to another, and it's important as well for us in the church to pass on our faith from one generation to another because they're going to look at how we treat our parents, no matter how good or how bad our parents are. We're called to honor and to love them. In John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, Behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour on, the disciple took her to his home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now what? Finished. Whew. It fulfills the scripture. He says, I thirst. He's done. And when you've done the work, now it's time to get a drink, isn't it? Tradition tells us that John took Mary into his home. There's two different things. Maybe they lived in Jerusalem for the next 11 years and then she died there in his home. And some have even suggested that he took her with him to Ephesus and it was there that she passed away. But John took serious that moment when Jesus looked at him and he said, Behold, your mother. I would love to behold my mother one more time. She passed in August. And I want to close with this. Going through her things, my aunt had found something that was given to my grandmother by my mother just before she died. And, and I want to share with you a poem that my mother has written. It's titled, Now is Our Time. Each day we face new challenges that bring us trials unknown. But we don't need to face them or deal with them alone. For others care about us and will lift us up in prayer. And He's always there to guide us with His gentle, loving care. Yes, He's our Heavenly Daddy and 
He's known us from the start, from the very moment that He placed us beneath our mother's heart, and carefully He tended us and watched us slowly grow until He said, now is your time to face the world we know. He's allowed us joy and happiness and, yes, suffering and pain. That's made us into who we are so that we can help regain those who have fallen by the way from sorrow, sin, or strife because He dearly wants each child to have eternal life. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, waits at heaven's gate to welcome us into our new home while angels celebrate Such joy our souls belong to Him to dwell forevermore with our our dear heavenly Daddy on that beautiful heavenly shore. I pray that one of these days as I pass from this world into the next that it will be said that I honored my father and my mother well in spite of who they were. Because it's not about who they are. It's about who He is. And how we live and how we treat those around us with His grace and His goodness, it changes the generations that are to come. If you love your Father in heaven, we need to learn to love our Father here on earth, our mother. That's His desire. I pray that you can find reconciliation if you've had conflicts. I pray that you're relationship can be restored. I pray if your relationship has been healthy and whole that you you are able to inspire the next generation as well by your influence and by your actions and by your grace and your mercy to your family around you that they see that this is all a part of God's plan of what love is. Woman, behold your son and behold your mother. Let's pray. Father, we are honored (laughs) because you love us in spite of who we are. Sometimes we're not so easy to turn and love others around us because we know what they've done against us. We've watched them and how they've treated other people even. Maybe they've treated us good, but how they've treated others we we just struggle with. How can we honor somebody who is so sinful? And we know Mary wasn't perfect, and yet... Jesus took care and provided for her. And he does the same for us. We are so thankful for your love. May it be pouring forth out of us to those around us as well. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.